Uh, welcome to Grace here at the Medina East Campus. So glad to have you all here together with us today. And uh, like Colin mentioned just a moment ago, I do just want to uh, really send out a very special welcome if you're a first-time guest. And so if it's your first time uh, getting connected here at Grace, maybe somebody invited you or maybe you just heard about us in some way and you're here for the first time, man, just a very, very special welcome to you. So glad that you're able to be with us. And then, of course, also, I just want to say to the online audience, so if you're joining uh, via live stream right now, I just want to give you a special shout out. Hope you're doing good this morning. And uh, wherever you might be watching this from, whatever state you might be in, I actually uh, talked to someone who's part of our congregation who I understand is in Florida this week who's watching. So hello from Ohio. Good to see you. And uh, or I should say good to be seen by you uh, this morning. And uh, But it's awesome to be together. Uh, if you are a guest or you're just jumping in, we are actually in the third part. We're in the third week of a series uh, that we've been journeying in that's been called True and False. And uh, basically, Basically, this whole series has been built out of one passage of the Bible. So the, the passage that we've been looking at together is actually found in Matthew chapter 7. And so I would love to uh, just right now invite you, if you got a Bible, why don't you go ahead and open it up with me. And if you would turn or if you would return, if you've been with us, back to Matthew chapter 7, that is where we're going to be going. Uh, if you didn't bring a Bible with you and, uh, and you want to use one of ours under the chairs, page 788 is where you're going to find Matthew chapter 7. And if you don't own a Bible, we'd love for you to have one of those. You can take it, make it a gift from us to you. So Matthew 7 is where we're going to go. Now, as you're locating Matthew 7, hopefully you got that there in front of you. Um, basically, the reason we're looking at this passage, interestingly, this whole, ser- this whole series, this four-week series, is built off of this passage, which is really a conclusion to a sermon. So that might sound weird to you. We're doing a whole sermon series that's a conclusion to a sermon. Uh, But what it is, is it's actually a conclusion to the most famous sermon that Jesus ever preached called the Sermon on the Mount. And so in your Bible, Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 6, Matthew chapter 7, that is what uh, what commentators call uh, the Sermon on the Mount. It's the most famous sermon. It's the most famous compilation of the most provocative and penetrating things that Jesus ever said. And so now that we get to Matthew chapter 7, we're going to see that this is the conclusion to Jesus' most famous sermon. And here's what we discovered. We said that when Jesus ends his sermon, he does it in a way that seems very unconventional to many of us who maybe are used to hearing sermons. And so when Jesus ends his sermon, uh, he does not end with an emotional crescendo. Uh, When Jesus ends his sermon, he doesn't end with like a heartwarming illustration. He doesn't end by giving us practical steps. He's not like, he doesn't say like, here's seven, you know, seven sensible steps of what to do with the Sermon on the Mount. He doesn't get gimmicky, none of those kind of things. But instead what Jesus does is he actually gives us a series of warnings. That's how Jesus ends his sermon. He ends with a series of warnings. And these all come in uh, these word pictures that come in twos. 
And so here's what we kind of discovered. We said that Jesus is going to conclude his sermon by first off warning us about two roads. Jesus is going to say there's only two roads. There's a broad one that leads to destruction, and there's a narrow road that leads to life. And Jesus is going to warn us about that. And then he's going to warn us about two teachers. He's going to say there are true teachers, true prophets, and there are false prophets. And uh, he's going to warn us about that. And then he's going to go on and he's going to warn us about the reality that there are two kinds of disciples, that there are true disciples who truly follow him, and then there are false disciples that he's going to warn us about. And then he's going to lastly warn us about two builders. He's going to say that there are two ways you can construct your life. One is on a true foundation that is strong and trustworthy, and one is on a false foundation that is flimsy and will fall apart. And so he's going to give us this, these series of warnings. And here's what we said. We said, man, this is, so, this is so alarming, the way that Jesus ends his sermon. We said that we actually just want to spend a week talking about each one of these, these pictures that Jesus gives us. And really, we're just asking the question, what did he mean by this? When Jesus warns us, what, did, what does he mean by that? And then how do we take heed? How do we heed his warning? Because I think that's his intention, right, is that we would heed his warning. And so first couple of weeks, we looked at the first two. This week, we're going to be looking at the third one. We're going to be talking about what Jesus teaches about two disciples, true and false disciples. So let's take a look at what Jesus says. In just a few verses, you can see, we're just looking at a few verses here today. Here's what Jesus is going to say, starting off in verse 21. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name, drive out demons. And in your name, perform many miracles. And then I'll tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evil doers. So that's the passage we're looking at today. So welcome to Grace. Glad to have you guys here. But uh, yeah, I think it's pretty clear. This is a challenging passage that we have in front of us. These are some challenging words from Jesus. Uh, these words that we're looking at have, uh, have actually been the cause of a lot of uh, confusion, a lot of questions, and a lot of fear among Christians um, really for, uh, throughout the centuries, really in a lot of ways. Uh, I like the way one very famous Bible teacher said it. He said that these are the scariest words we have on record ever to come out of the mouth of Jesus. And I, I can't say I disagree with them. These are some very, very frightening words that we see in front of us. And I don't know if you noticed this. If you've been with us over the past few weeks, you may have noticed that these warnings that Jesus gives us, it's almost like there's a progressive intensity it's like he's ratcheting it up as we continue to go through the warnings. And so, for example, the first week, I think when Jesus warns us about the two paths, I think in many ways what Jesus is warning us is he's warning us not to be deceived. He's saying, don't be deceived by the majority, right? So we looked at that, the passage. Jesus says there's one broad road that leads to destruction, and many people are on it. And he says, and there's a narrow road that leads to life, and only a few find it. And I think in part what Jesus is trying to do is he's trying to warn us to not be deceived by the majority, to not just go with the crowd. In other words, I think what Jesus is warning us is that truth is not determined by consensus. It's not how you discover truth. And then I think last week, if you were with us, Jesus ratcheted it up a little bit. And I think what he warned us about last week was not to be deceived by false teachers. I think the first one, don't be, deserved, don't be deceived by the majority. Truth is not determined by consensus. Last week, I think he's warning us about being deceived by false teaching. And uh, if you were with us last week, we talked about how Jesus taught us, he told us the importance of, of uh, watching out for 
of, uh, of, of looking, of, of being able to see through and look past false teachers. Well, this week, I think he even turns it up a little bit more. And I think what Jesus warns us about is self-deception, being deceived by ourselves. And, uh, and I think because of that, that makes what Jesus says more alarming. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, is going to enter into the kingdom of heaven. What is Jesus saying? Well, I can just tell you that after studying this passage, uh, I am convinced, what I am convinced of, is that what Jesus is trying to warn us of in this passage is this. I think Jesus is trying to warn us that it is possible, it is entirely possible to profess the right name. It's entirely possible to even produce impressive results and yet not truly know and follow Jesus. I'm convinced after looking in and studying this passage that Jesus is trying to warn us of this reality, that it is possible. It is possible to know the right name, profess the right name. It's possible to produce impressive results and still not truly follow and know Jesus. I want you to notice, first off, it's possible to profess the right name. Uh, I don't know if you noticed in this passage as we were going through, but did you notice in three short verses, did you notice the amount of attention that is given to names in, in this passage Jesus gives us? Let me just show you. Jesus says, uh, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. And so here you can see that there's a group of disciples, false disciples, who are calling him Lord. They're calling him by the name Lord. And then notice he repeats that in verse 22. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord. He says it again, Lord, Lord, there's the name. And then notice, did we not prophesy in your name? In your name, in what name? Lord, Lord. Um, and didn't we drive out demons in your name? There's a big, big emphasis on name. And didn't we perform a lot of miracles in your name? And so you can see that there's a lot of attention. There's a lot of focus given in this passage to uh, the name. Now, what's that talking about? Well, I think it's actually helpful for us to understand uh, what this word means, the word that's used when they say Lord. It's actually a very important word. So apparently Jesus says that these false disciples, uh, they actually say Lord. That's the, the, the title that they give to Jesus. And that title is a very important word. In the Greek language, which is what the uh, New Testament was originally written in, uh, the word is actually this word right here. It is the word kurios. It's the word kurios. In fact, why don't you try to say that with me? Can you say kurios? Kurios. Now, now you're probably like, well, now I'm kurios what that means. That's worst. That's the worst. I, I've never, I didn't use that joke in any other services, and so they had it better than you did, so I apologize. But <laughs> the curious, here's what it means. It means, it's translated Lord. It means one who is in a position of authority. It's sometimes translated master. Now, here's why this word's so important, and why I want you to understand this. This word, as easy as it is to understand, it's a very freighted word. Uh, there is a lot that this word meant, especially to Jesus's original audience. And so Jesus's original audience, when they would have heard this word, Lord, uh, they would have known exactly what he meant by that uh, because this was a word that was actually extremely political in Jesus's day. Uh, back in the first century, many of you might know this, Rome, Rome was the mega power of the world. And of course, the leader of Rome was Caesar. And there was a statement that people said back in the first century, and it was this one. It was Kyrios Caesar. That's what they would say. What that means is Caesar is Lord. And that phrase didn't just mean Caesar is boss, and it didn't just mean Caesar's the head honcho or Caesar's the dictator. It actually had divine connotations that came along with it. Back in the first century, they actually believed that Caesar was a god. That's what they believed. There's actually a coin. Uh, this is actually um, a first century coin that would have been used back in Jesus's time. It has Caesar's picture stamped on it. And then the inscription actually says Caesar, the son of God. 
And so when, when Christians started to put their faith in Jesus Christ, they would not say Kyrios Kesar. They wouldn't do that. What they would say is they would say Kyrios Christos. They would say Jesus. Jesus is Lord. So, so when these disciples here in this passage are saying, Lord, Lord, what's that mean? Well, here's what it means. It means they were using the right name. It means this. It means they had right theology. They knew, they knew true things about who Jesus was. They, they were using his name correctly. They had the right name. And not only that, this passage I think is gonna show us, not only did they have good theology, not, not only did they know the right things about Jesus, they even had emotional engagement. So I want you to notice again in this passage, they don't just say Lord, they say Lord, Lord. They say it twice. Now the reason that's so important is because in Semitic language, uh, back in Jesus' time, if you wanted to emphasize the emotional intensity of something, the way you would do that would be by repeating something. You actually see this all throughout the Bible. In the Old Testament, uh, King David loses his son Absalom, and he's deeply distraught. And what does he say? He says, Absalom, Absalom. Or if you look in the New Testament, after Jesus raises from the dead, he encounters Mary. Mary's absolutely distraught. And what does he say? He says, Mary, Mary. He repeats it. And so, and so what that's saying is, I think what the passage is telling us is that not only do these people have the right name, not only do they have good theology, not only do they know the right things about Jesus, there is even an emotional fervency. There's an emotional intensity. If, they were, if, 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 this, if a person like this was in the setting like this, they might even sing to the name of Jesus. They may even be the person who would raise their hands in the presence of worshiping Jesus. And so it's crazy, as the Bible says, that I think Jesus is gonna tell us, I think that it's possible to profess the right name. And then notice this next thing. It's also possible to produce the impressive results. I'll be honest, this next part, it kind of boggles my mind a little bit. And I'm still not quite sure I fully understand this next part. But look what Jesus says. Jesus says, not only do they, do they know my name and call me by that name, but apparently they do really impressive things with that name. And so the Bible says they prophesied in his name. What does that mean? It means that they told other people about Jesus. It means that they, 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 they talked about it. They would proclaim the word of God. Uh, they would uh, drive out demons in his name, performed a lot of miracles. Man, I, those are impressive results. Those are, it kind of boggles my mind a little bit. These are impressive results. And here's what Jesus says. He says, even though they know the right name, they profess the right name, and even though they produce impressive results, Jesus says, look what he says in verse 22. He says, still yet many, many will say to me on that day. Many will say to me on that day. Now, uh, let me hit pause real quick. Let me just clarify something. When, he, when Jesus says on that day, some of you might be thinking to yourself, okay, what, what day are we talking about exactly? What is that day? And so actually that phrase, that day, that term, that day, that actually is all throughout the Bible. And it's referring to a specific day. The biblical authors just call it that day. They call it that day. In fact, once you turn to your neighbor and in the most booming voice you can come up with, just say, that day. Go ahead, do it, right? That day, that day. So I just want you to know, um, Isaiah in the Old Testament talks about that day. Amos in the Old Testament talks about that day. Zephaniah talks about that day. Zechariah talks about that day. The Apostle Paul talks about that day. John talks about that day. Jesus talks about that day. And so if you're like, 
what day are we talking about? And here's what it is. It's the day of judgment. That's what it is. It is the day, the Bible tells us, when Jesus Christ will judge the living and the dead. And that day is coming. And listen, in no uncertain terms in scripture, the Bible is telling us that is a reality, that we will all stand before the judge, and that what is, what is, what is, what is hidden will be revealed. And on that day, there is a day where Jesus will judge the living and the dead. The Bible is going to tell us that in no uncertain terms. And here's what Jesus is telling us. He's, he's warning us that on that day, on that day, it is possible, it is possible to profess the right name and it is possible to produce impressive results and still find out that you don't know and that you don't follow Jesus. In fact, listen, if I'm just being faithful to what the text is teaching us, I think I actually have to change my wording. And I think it'd be more accurate to word it this way. It's probable probable. Jesus says many, not a few. It's probable that many are going to come to him and profess the right name and produce impressive results. And yet Jesus is going to tell them, I don't know you. And I never did. I never knew you. Man, that's heavy. It's a heavy passage. And I think when we read this, and when we read it with integrity, I think what happens is, is there's a real thick tension that I think we're facing when we read this. Because here's, here's, what, I, here's what I believe. Um, I'm convinced that if I'm reading this passage correctly, and I'm convinced I am. And I could be wrong. I'm a human being, just like anyone else. But I'm, I'm convinced that if I'm reading this correctly, what Jesus is saying is this. Jesus is saying that there are many people who are convinced that they're gonna enter the kingdom of God, but they're deceived. And they're going to be surprised on that day. I think that's what Jesus, if I'm just reading it plainly, I think it's very clear what the meaning is. I think that's what Jesus is telling us. And so here's, here's where I want you to, to kind of see this. This is where I have two equal and opposite fears. As I'm trying to communicate what Jesus says, there, I have two equal and opposite fears. And so one fear is this. On one side, I don't want to tell anybody who's sitting in this room right now, either physically or virtually, I don't want to tell anyone who's sitting in this room that you're going to enter the kingdom of God if you're not. I don't want to tell you that. I don't want to assure you that you have a relationship with Jesus if you don't, if you don't. And so on one side, I have this fear, and, and I'll just be honest with you. I, I, what I naturally want to do, what I want to do is I want to avoid the tension, you know? And I just want to quickly fast forward this and explain it away and be like, well, let me tell you what Jesus really meant, and this is why you're all okay. That's what I want to do, but there's a problem. There's a problem with that. I don't judge the living and the dead. That's not, that's not what I do. But on the other side, I have another tension. I have a really strong fear. And my other fear is I'm equally afraid of scaring people who really know Jesus to suddenly doubt and fear that you don't. I don't want to do that either. Because there's many of you in here who know and follow and love Jesus. And I just don't want you to all of a sudden become scared and full of doubt. And so I think that there's a real tension. And so he, let me tell you what I'm convinced of. I'm convinced of a couple things. First off, I'm convinced that as much as I just want to fast forward through what Jesus says, that Jesus is far more loving 
than I am. I'm just super convinced of that. And so because of that, I think that anything he has to say is motivated because he really cares and he really loves us more than we can imagine. I think the cross proves that to be true. Let me tell you something else I'm convinced of. I'm convinced of this. I'm convinced that Jesus' desire with these words is not to bring us into greater confusion, but to lead us into greater clarity. That's why you give warnings, right? It's to lead in greater clarity. So all to say, I'm not entirely sure what to do with that tension that I just mentioned. Just being honest, I'm not sure to do with that tension except to acknowledge it. And then I think what we need to do is we need to just lean really hard into what Jesus said and let his word do its work. Let's just let his word do its work. And so the big question is, man, if you have these disciples who are saying the right thing and they're even producing impressive results and yet they're deceived and they don't actually know Jesus, well, then I think the natural question is, what did they miss? What was it that caused them to be so deceived? And I think, as best as I understand what this passage means, and I'm convinced that Jesus is gonna tell us that there's two things that they were missing, two things. And what were they? I think Jesus is gonna show us that for these false disciples, Jesus was the Lord of their lips, but never the Lord of their lives. He's the Lord of their lips, but not the Lord of their lives. And secondly, they never allowed Jesus to truly know them. Some of you are like, where are you getting that from? Well, let me show you where I'm getting it from. So look what Jesus says again in uh, verse 21. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Now look at this, very clarifying. So how do we know a false from a true disciple? He says, well, the one who's a true disciple is the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. So again, very clarifying words that Jesus gives us here. He says, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, but only the one who does the will of my father. Now that begs a good question. What does that mean to do the will of a father? Well, I think we all understand what a person's will is, what a will is. A will is a person's desires, it's a person's wants, it's a person's wishes, it's a person's agenda, that's what it is. Um, I think Jesus clarifies this in a parallel passage. There's another passage in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus says, why did you call me Lord, Lord, there it is again, and yet you do not do what I say, and yet you do not do what I say. Accomplish my will, my heart, my desires, those type of things. I think, I think, really what Jesus is pointing at here is that one of the central issues is this, is that even though these individuals profess the right name, their profession was simply lip service. That basically it concerned their lips, but it actually didn't concern their lives. Now, I don't want you to hear me wrong, okay? A verbal profession of Jesus Christ is absolutely imperative. It is. The Bible says that. Look what it says in the book of Romans. It says, if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you're gonna be saved. So the Bible's clear, a verbal profession is essential. That's necessary. But I think what Jesus is trying to tell us is that true discipleship to Jesus has to extend beyond that. That basically the claim to follow Jesus has to be backed up with and it has to be evidenced in our life. It has to be a reality that's behind it. If I could put it to you another way, I might say it this way. I think in many ways what Jesus is trying to show us is that one of the indications of a false disciple is that false disciples use the Lord's name in vain. They use the Lord's name in vain. Uh, It actually reminds me of something Jesus said. Jesus said in Matthew 15, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. And so I think false disciples, one of the indications is they use the Lord's name in vain. 
Use the Lord's name. Now, some of you might be like, what exactly does that mean? Maybe you've heard that before. You've heard that phrase, don't use the Lord's name in vain. And I think for a lot of us, when we, when we think of that idea, we tend to think uh, of cussing. That's what we usually think of, right? We think of using Jesus's name as profanity. And for sure, I think that's wrong. Like, I don't think that's a good idea. But I don't think that's what the Bible means when it talks about using the Lord's name in vain. So what does it mean then to use the Lord's name in vain? Well, just for a minute, uh, let's just think about this. I want you to think with me about the idea of doing something in the name of someone else. I just want you to think about that with me for a minute. So I think we all kind of understand this, right? I think we all know that it is possible that if you know the right name or you know the right person or if you possess the right name, that that's going to give you opportunities and that's going to give you access to things that you wouldn't have without that name. I think we all kind of know that. I know uh, one, one uh, famous uh, author and pastor who I really like, uh, Tim Keller, he said it this way. He said, powerful names open doors. I think that's a really good statement. So maybe here's a helpful illustration of what I'm talking about. I think it's one we're all familiar with. It's an illustration that you see a lot with kids. And so if you have kids, you're going to know what I'm talking about. Uh, even if you don't have kids, if you ever were a kid, you're going to know what I'm talking about. But, uh, but something like this. So my wife and I, we're very familiar with this. We have four kids. We have four kids that are all 12 and under. And a very common experience that happens in our house, it only happens every day, is that our kids are going to fight about something that's pointless. All right, so that's pretty much every day that's going to happen at one point or another. And I don't know why, but it seems like the most frequent fight that happens is over doors. It's over the shutting and opening of doors. That's a big thing. And so what happens, this is a very common scenario, is that one kid is being shut out of a room by the other kids, and they refuse to open the door. It's very common. So it could be the bathroom. One kid's in the bathroom, the other kid's, let me in. No. It could be their bedroom. The two kids are playing in the bedroom. One wants to come in. No, they're shutting you out. It could be the basement where there's a lot of toys. It could be our house. They're outside. Let me in. No. (laughs) Happens a lot. When that occurs, when that situation occurs, here's what happens every single time. The kid who's shut out, no matter which one it is, comes running to mom or dad every time. And what do they say? Mom, dad, such and such won't let me in whatever room of the house it is. And then what do I say most of the time? If I'm just being real honest, typically what I do is I don't even look up from what I'm doing. And I just say, tell them to let you in. That's it. And what do they do? They run back with a new sense of authority in their hearts. And they pound on the door and they say, let me in. And they say, no. And then they say, let me in because, why? Tell me. Dad says. Dad said. Then what happens? Door comes open. Some of you guys like, nothing. I'm like, sometimes, sometimes nothing. But in theory, in theory, the door opens, right? Now, why is that? Why is that? Here's why. It's the name. It's the name. They come, they come not in his or her own name, but they come now in the name of mom or the name of dad, and now things change. There's an authority that is is given to them because of that name. Names open doors. I think we all understand the power of names and, and also the danger in misusing names. I think we understand that. That's why in our society, there's so many laws about that. There's copyright laws. There's slander laws. There's you know infringement laws and, and, and all forgery laws that exist out there because we know the danger of this. So when we say that we're doing something in the name of somebody, we're implying that there is a real relationship and that there is a reality behind that, 
There's a reality that, that, that is a concrete thing that's behind that. So when my son says, dad says, when my son actually says that, that implies a whole lot. That implies that he and I have a real relationship. That implies that we had a real conversation. And that implies that he is adequately and accurately representing the conversation that we had, that he's doing the thing that I would do if I was there. That's what, that's, that's what that would imply. Now, I think we all also understand that it is possible, it's entirely possible to misuse somebody's name, to say someone's name and have no reality that backs it up. So here's a, here's a really kind of silly example. Let's just say that this afternoon, so the Browns are playing this afternoon. Any, anyone hear about that? I don't know. Anyone excited about that happening today? So the Browns are playing this afternoon. Beautiful day for the game. Let's say that this afternoon I went up to Cleveland, all right, and I went up to the stadium. Now, clearly, the man of the hour up there today is Baker Mayfield, right? So Cleveland QB, his name is going to be on the lips of many people up in Cleveland today. So let's say I go up to Cleveland, and I go up to the stadium, and I go up to the gate. I got no tickets. I got nothing. And it's sold out. And I get up there, and the guy says, ticket, please. And I say, I don't have any tickets. I said, but I'd like your best um, Lounge, I don't know, what do you call that thing? Is that loge? I'd like you, I see, this shows you how often I do this. I'm like, I'll take your best seats, and, uh, and, uh, and what's he gonna do? He's gonna laugh at me. And then what if I said this? What if I said, oh, no, no, it's okay. Baker sent me. Baker sent me, amen. That's the amen, that's the point in the sermon. All right, it's fine. So, like, Baker sent me. And, let, and let's say somehow, somehow, it works. And they take me to this awesome place, and there's all I could eat, and it's, you know, I'm eating this food, and I'm charging it to Baker's bill. I'm like, it's, put it on Baker. He's got it. Good old Bakester. Bakemeister. Bake goods. That's what I call him. And we go way back. Let's just say I do that. And let's say that people hear me talk, and they're like, oh, you know Baker? I'm like, yeah, I know Baker. And I, I could, maybe I even know stats about Baker. Maybe I even know what college he went to. Maybe I even know things about his personal life that I could teach you about Baker. But of course, let's say that at one point, someone actually sees Baker, and then they say, oh, hey, Baker, I met your, your buddy up in your seats. Tony, what's Baker going to say? Who? And then he's going to say, well, you know, Pastor Tony from the Medina East Campus. He's, knows all kinds of, he knows all kinds of stuff about you. He's doing all kinds of stuff in your name. What's Baker going to say? I don't know him. I never knew him. But what does it mean to take the Lord's name in vain? I think what Jesus is telling us is that it is possible to be a Christian in name only. To, 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 the, the, he's the Lord of your lips, but he's not actually the Lord of your life. There's no reality. There's no reality that lies behind it. I think it's possible that you can even do impressive things and know his name, and yet when you call up Jesus and you say, hey, Jesus, do you know this person? Jesus says, I, I never knew them. I don't know them. I think here's the central issue. Do you know Jesus? Do you know him? You call him, maybe you call him Lord, but is that true? Is he actually the king of your life? I mean, not perfectly, but is that the desire of your heart? Is that he is your king, that he is your king? Maybe here's another way to put it. Is the agenda of your life wrapped up in and determined by and defined by his agenda? Or do you just have your own thing you're doing 
and you're just asking him to bless it in his name? I think it's a penetrating and important question that we need to think through. Are the priorities of my life in alignment with his priorities for my life? Or do I just opt out when it's inconvenient or it's hard or when I disagree? I think, he's, I think Jesus is always trying to drive us to just being authentic about where we are with him. You know, I, I, I don't know if you guys ever thought about this, but do you know to say, to say no, Lord, to say that is actually an oxymoron because to say no, Lord, is actually to say yes, Lord, to your true Lord. I think what Jesus is trying to do is he's trying to show us that, that, that true discipleship is not just saying that he's my Lord with just my lips, but I have a life and a reality that backs that up. That actually leads me to the second thing. I think Jesus is going to tell us that not only was the Lord uh, just the Lord, Jesus was not just the Lord of their lips, but the Lord of their lives, but they also did never allowed Jesus to truly know them. Now, I want you to notice what Jesus says here. Uh, the wording of this I find really, really compelling. Jesus says, then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Isn't that interesting? Jesus doesn't say, you never knew me. He says, no, I never knew you. Some of you might be thinking, well, how is that possible? So maybe some of you might be thinking to yourself, well, if Jesus is God, if all that's true, then doesn't that mean that Jesus knows everybody? That like every hair on my head is counted and he knew me from when you know, I was knit together in my mother's womb and all of that. And this is where I think it's important that we understand the word that's used here for know. And so this word is actually a really important word. It's the word gnosko. And the word gnosko, it doesn't just mean to know something in fact or to know something in information, but it actually means to know something personally. This word is talking about intimately and experientially. I experientially know something. That's what it is. Interestingly, this very same word is used uh, to talk about the way that a husband and wife know each other. It is a deep, it is a personal, it is an intimate, it is an experiential knowledge of something. And I think that really right here, you see a big, a big part of the heart of what Jesus is trying to get at. You know, I think marriage is a great example of this. Uh, when I got married to my wife and, and we stood on the altar that day, it involved a verbal profession. It did. I, I said vows. I committed things to her and I committed things to God on that day. But I think all of us know, I think all of us know that that was not the summation. That verbal profession was not the summation of our marriage. It was simply the entry point of our life together. You see, and I think, I think one of the ways that we are deceived is that sometimes we misunderstand what true discipleship is. Maybe I could just put it this way. True discipleship to Jesus, I believe, is not about just saying the right things about Jesus. True discipleship is not just about having the right theology. It's not just about right knowing the right things about the Bible, which, by the way, I think that's all good. I think that's great. But I think, I think we make a mistake and we're deceived when we believe that that's the summation of what discipleship to Jesus really is. I think in the same way, true discipleship is not about doing the right things for Jesus. Obviously, it's good to do the right things, right? But, but, but true discipleship is not just checking off my to-do list of the things that I want to do, the impressive list of things that I'm going to do for God. True discipleship, I believe, is this. It's about living life. It's living life with and for him, where he is my Lord and he's my father. And it is, a, it is a day by day, a moment by moment, experiential knowledge of who he is. 
We talked earlier, the Bible said, Jesus said, only the one who does the will of my father. And of course, the question is, well, what is the will of our father? And I'll tell you what the will of our father is because he tells us. You know what the will of our father is? That you know Jesus, that you know him. Not not just like a secondhand relationship, but like a firsthand experience knowing him. Um, I love what the Bible says in John chapter six. It says, for this is the will of my father. You wanna know what the will of God is? Here it is. Here's the will of God, that everyone who looks at the son and believes in him will have eternal life and I'll raise him up on the last day. What's God's will? That you would look to Jesus, that you'd throw yourself on him as your savior and as your Lord and find him to be your father. If you've never done that before, that's God's desire for you. How about this? John 17, three, this is eternal life, that they know, same word, gnosko, that they know you, the only true God, Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Romans 8 says it's God's will that we are be conformed to the image of his son. In other words, what the Bible is saying is that as we live life with Jesus, as our king and as our father, God's goal is that he would transform us to look more like him. And here's the big issue. Do we have an experiential knowledge of him, of Jesus? Or do we simply have a secondhand relationship with him? And maybe for some of us, our relationship with God is tied up in a relationship with another person. So maybe for you, you're like, well, my wife, she's the one that does the God stuff. And I just kind of get it through her. So my relationship with Jesus is kind of, or maybe it's your husband. My husband does the God stuff. He has the relationship with Jesus. And I just kind of, I kind of just, you know, interact with Jesus through him. Or maybe it's a leader. Maybe it's a pastor. You're like, well, you're the one who does the God stuff. And then I just kind of come to you and I, and, and listen, I'm just saying, if those relationships were removed, is there a real relationship that would remain with Jesus? And I think that's what he's getting down to. Now, I know for some of you, even as we're having this conversation, it might make you a little nervous. And you might be asking yourself, well, hold on a minute. Are you telling me that it's possible to lose my salvation? Is that what you're saying here? And I just want to tell you, I don't think that's what this passage is even about. I don't even think that's what this passage is talking about. I think this passage is not about how to be saved. Jesus already dealt with that at the beginning of his sermon when he said, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of God. And I think that what he means by that is that salvation starts by throwing yourself on the mercy of Jesus. It's not because of impressive things that we've done. It's not because of the knowledge that we have. It's simply because we rely and trust in Jesus. But I think what this passage is doing is it's simply affirming to us, how do you know that you had a true profession of faith versus a false profession of faith? I think a true profession of faith is evidenced in this. It's evidenced in a heart that cries out, Jesus, I want you to be my king. And maybe not perfectly, but man, increasingly, that is the cry of my heart. I want you to be my king and I want you to be my father. I wanna know you. I think if your heart's crying out in those ways, that's a good sign. That's a good sign according to what Jesus says. I'm gonna invite the band to come up. And as the band makes their way up here, I just want to end by saying two quick things. And then I want to give you space to just talk and pray with God in light of our conversation today. Here's my first question I want you to think about is, are you ready? Are you ready for that day? That day. The Bible tells us that that day is coming and we're all going to face that day. And I wonder, is that day, is that day going to be a disruption to you? Is it going to be a disruption to your plans? Is it going to be a disruption to your agenda? 
is it gonna, is it gonna be a surprise to you? Or listen, is that day simply gonna be a continuation of the relationship that you already have? I love the way uh, one particular commentator, the name of Justin DeLahey said it. He said, we don't have to live in terror of that final day. We don't have to. We can be preparing for it because for those known by Jesus, the final day won't be some huge disruption. I love that. I love what he says next. It'll simply be a heightened continuation of the relationship that we already enjoy with him now by faith. That got so good. You see what he's saying? He's saying, listen, if Jesus isn't the king of your life now, why would it change on that day? Why would we be deceived to think that if I don't want him to be king now, that I'm gonna want him to be king then? If there's not a real relationship that exists now, why would that change on that day, on that day? And I think that's really the big issue. I think we can stand with confidence. We can stand with confidence on that day because we know that Jesus is our king, because we know that he is. I think that we, 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 we're not, we don't find confidence because of the impressive things that we do or because of all the things that we know. It's simply because we know Jesus as father and we know him as king. And there's probably a lot of questions. There's probably a lot of comments and a lot of tensions that you might be facing in this moment. But I, I'm convinced that we could spend all day talking about this. But this is the place where I think a sermon has to stop. And this is the place where I think a genuine connection with God needs to begin. And so listen, my whole goal, my whole hope this morning is that I just want to be like a liaison. And I just want to come and say, look, here's what God's word says. This is what Jesus says. To the best that I know, here's what it means. And then I want you to, to see what Jesus said. And then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to opt out and the two of you deal with it. And I think that in these next moments, my best encouragement would be, would be to you is to talk to him, talk to him, talk to Jesus, interact with him, because here's what I'm convinced of. He loves you. He loves you. The reason he's telling you this is because he loves you. Because on that day, on that day, many people are going to say to him, Lord, Lord, and he's going to say, I never knew you. But listen to me, on this day, this one right here in front of us, Jesus is telling you these words. And why would he do that? Unless he didn't desperately want you to accept the invitation to be known and to be loved by him. And so why don't you talk to him? Maybe even for the first time, embrace him as king and embrace him as father. Make him the Lord of your life. Let's pray. But Jesus, you are the king. You're the king And if the scripture is correct, then you're the king, whether we say that or not. And so, Father, I pray that in these moments, that as we let your word, these challenging words that you've given us, as we let them work in our hearts and as we let them work in our minds, I pray, Jesus, that even in these next moments, would you bring affirmation and security to the person in this room who needs affirmation and security? Lord, I pray that for the person who's afraid that they don't know you, but they truly know you, I pray you would remove that fear and give them great confidence that they know you. But God, I also pray for the person who might be deceived. Would you be gracious and loving enough to reveal that, to show that, so that we can turn. We have time to turn to you because on this day, you're giving us the invitation. You're offering it to us. So I pray that in these next moments, that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would work and speak to each one of our hearts. We just want to pray this, these things and ask it 
in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.